third part of chapter four of the second volume of The Life of Reason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Daniel Fraser. The Life of Reason by George Santayana. Chapter four, The Aristocratic Ideal, part three. Mutilation by crowding. The same curse of suffering vitiates Agrippa's ingenious parable and the joyful humility of Dante's celestial friends, and renders both equally irrelevant to human conditions. Nature may arrange her hierarchies as she chooses, and make her creatures instrumental to one another's life. That interrelation is no injury to any part, and an added beauty in the whole. It would have been a truly admirable arrangement to have enabled every living being, in attaining its own end, to make the attainments of the other's ends possible to them also. An approach to such an equilibrium has actually been reached in some respects by the rough sifting of miscellaneous organisms until those that were compatible alone remained. But nature, in her haste to be fertile, wants to produce everything at once, and her distracted industry has brought about terrible confusion and waste and terrible injustice. She has been led to punish her ministers for the services they render, and her favourites for the honours they receive. She has imposed suffering on her creatures together with life. She has defeated her own objects and vitiated her bounty by letting every good do harm and bring evil in its train to some unsuspecting creature. This oppression is the moral stain that attaches to aristocracy and makes it truly unjust. Every privilege that imposes suffering involves a wrong. Not only does aristocracy lay on the world a tax in labour and privation that its own splendours, intellectual and worldly, may arise, but by doing so it infects intelligence and grandeur within humanity and renders corrupt and odious that preeminence which should have been divine. The lower classes, in submitting to the hardship and meanness of their lives, which to be sure might have been harder and meaner had no aristocracy existed, must upbraid their fellow men for profiting by their ill fortune and therefore having an interest in perpetuating it. Instead of the brutal but innocent injustice of nature, what they suffer from is the sly injustice of men. And though the suffering be less, for the worst of men is human, the injury is more sensible. The inclemencies and dangers men must endure in a savage state, in scourging them, would not have profited by that cruelty. But suffering has an added sting when it enables others to be exempt from care and to live like the gods in irresponsible ease, the inequality, which would have been innocent and even beautiful in a happy world, becomes, in a painful world, a bitter wrong, or at best, a criminal beauty. A Hint to Optimists It would be a happy relief to the aristocrat's conscience, when he possesses one, could he learn from some yet bolder Descartes that common people were nothing but bet machines, and that only a groundless prejudice had hitherto led us to suppose that life could exist where evidently nothing good could be attained by living. If all unfortunate people could be proved to be unconscious automata, what a brilliant justification that would be for the ways of both God and man. Philosophy would not lack arguments to support such an agreeable conclusion. Beginning with the axiom that whatever is, is right, a metaphysician might adduce the truth that consciousness is something self-existent and indubitably real. Therefore, he would contend, it must be self-justifying and indubitably good. 
and he might continue by saying that a slave's life was not its own excuse for being, nor were the labours of a million drudges otherwise justified than by the conveniences which they supplied their masters with. Ergo, those servile operations could come to consciousness only where they attained their end, and the world could contain nothing but perfect and universal happiness. A divine omniscience and joy, shared by finite minds in so far as they might attain perfection, would be the only life in existence, and the notion that such a thing as pain, sorrow or hatred could exist at all, would forthwith vanish like the hideous and ridiculous illusion that it was. This argument may be recommended to apologetic writers as no weaker than those they commonly rely on, and infinitely more consoling. How aristocracies might do good. But so long as people remain on what such an invaluable optimist might call the low level of sensuous thought, and so long as we imagine that we exist and suffer, an aristocratic regimen can only be justified by radiating benefit, and by proving that were less given to those above, less will be attained by those beneath them. Such reversion of benefit might take a material form, as when, by commercial guidance and military protection, a greater net product is secured to labour, even after all needful taxes have been levied upon it to support greatness. An industrial and political oligarchy might defend itself on that ground. Or the return might make the less positive form of opportunity, as it does when an aristocratic society has a democratic government. Here, the people neither accept guidance nor require protection, but the existence of a rich and irresponsible class offers them an ideal, such as it is, in their ambitious struggles. For they too may grow rich, exercise financial ascendancy, educate their sons like gentlemen, and launch their daughters into fashionable society. Finally, if the only aristocracy recognised were an aristocracy of achievement, and if public rewards followed personal merit, the reversion to the people might take the form of participation by them in the ideal interests of eminent men. Holiness, genius and knowledge can reverberate through all society. The fruits of art and science are in themselves cheap, and not to be monopolised or consumed in enjoyment. On the contrary, their wider diffusion stimulates their growth, and makes their cultivation more intense and successful. When an ideal interest is general, the share which falls to the private person is the more apt to be efficacious. The saints have usually had companions, and artists and philosophers have flourished in schools. At the same time, ideal goods cannot be assimilated without some training and leisure. Like education and religion, they are degraded by popularity, and reduced from what the master intended to what the people are able and willing to receive. So pleasing an idea, then, as this of diffused ideal possessions, has little application in a society aristocratically framed, for the greater eminence the few attain, the less able are the many to follow them. Great thoughts require a great mind, and pure beauties a profound sensibility. To attempt to give such things a wide currency is to be willing to denaturalise them in order to boast that they have been propagated. Culture is on the horns of this dilemma. If profound and noble, it must remain rare. If common, it must become mean. These alternatives can never be eluded until some purified and high-bred race 
succeeds the promiscuous bipeds that now blacken the planet. Man adds wrong to nature's injury. Aristocracy, like everything else, has no practical force save that which mechanical causes endow it with. Its privileges are fruits of inevitable advantages. Its oppressions are simply new forms and vehicles for nature's primeval cruelty, while the benefits it may also confer are only further examples of her nice equilibrium and necessary harmony. For it lies in the essence of a mechanical world, where the interests of its products are concerned, to be fundamentally kind, since it has formed and on the whole maintains those products, and yet continually cruel, since it forms and maintains them blindly, without considering difficulties or probable failures. Now, the most tyrannical government, like the best, is a natural product maintained by an equilibrium of natural forces. It is simply a new mode of mechanical energy to which the philosopher living under it must adjust himself as he would to the weather. But when the vehicle of nature's inclemency is a heartless man, even if the harm done be less, it puts on a new and a moral aspect. The source of injury is then not only natural, but criminal as well, and the result is a sense of wrong added to misfortune. It must needs be that offence come, but woe to him by whom the offence cometh. He justly arouses indignation and endures remorse. Conditions of a just inequality. Now, civilization cannot afford to entangle its ideals with the causes of remorse and of just indignation. In the first place, nature in her slow and ponderous way levels her processes and rubs off her sharp edges by perpetual friction. Where there is maladjustment, there is no permanent physical stability. Therefore, the ideal of society can never involve the infliction of injury on anybody for any purpose. Such an ideal would propose, for a goal, something out of equilibrium, a society which even if established could not maintain itself. But an ideal life must not tend to destroy its ideal by abolishing its own existence. In the second place, it is impossible on moral grounds that injustice should subsist in the ideal. The ideal means the perfect, and a supposed ideal in which wrong still subsisted would be the denial of perfection. The ideal state and the ideal universe should be a family where all are not equal, but where all are happy, so that an aristocratic or theistic system, in order to deserve respect, must discard its sinister apologies for evil and clearly propose such an order of existences, one superposed upon the other, as should involve no suffering on any of its levels. The services required of each must involve no injury to any. To perform them should be made the servant's spontaneous and specific ideal. The privileges the system bestows on some must involve no outrage on the rest, and must not be paid for by mutilating other lives or thwarting their natural potentialities. For the humble to give their labour would then be blessed in reality, and not merely by imputation, while for the great to receive those benefits would be blessed also, not in fact only, but in justice. End of chapter 4, part 3